Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. I'm Kim Naomi, and this is Mentorship Matters, a podcast that examines the current and future landscape of fundraising leaders and the power of inclusive mentorship in advancement. Today, it's my honor and privilege to welcome a friend, respected colleague, Mr. Bill Bolt, retired vice president of advancement. Bill, welcome. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to this, Kim. Yes, you know, I was thinking about having a conversation about productivity fundraising, and there's no better person that I wanted to talk to than you because of your extensive background. So uh, great to see you, but I'd like to ask you to kick us off by giving us a a brief uh, overview of your background in advancement. Thank you, Kim. I'll try to make it very brief. Uh, So I started way before you were born, in 1971 uh, as a nutritionist. And I was one of the few uh, nutritionists that really marketed nutrition education. I worked for Oregon State University and I I learned marketing backwards and forwards because I have a very uh, uh, sensitive uh, personality and I wanna make sure things are going right. And um, so uh, that got me into marketing. And from there, I worked with, uh, I was uh, an assistant professor, got my doctorate, University of Oregon. And then I was very fortunate to be hired back to Oregon State University. And we had a huge uh, problem in 1982 with uh, the economy. And so I was the department chair in Portland, Oregon for Oregon State University. And the only way we could survive was to build a new education center. And I knew nothing about fundraising. So I was thrown into the, uh, the deep end of the pool and uh, quickly uh, learned about fundraising. And uh, uh, we, we did build that education center. And uh, uh, that started my career in 1982, really in fundraising and marketing. Uh, I was recruited to Cornell University, very, very fortunate. Um, I'm the guy that never gives up an opportunity. So my wife that is said, a good thing. <laughs> yeah, really. So, so Kim, my wife's saying we're moving the three children where? I said Ithaca, New York, Cornell University, great place. And <laughs> I just it was just serendipity. Uh, uh, we moved there, and I was hired as assistant dean of the College of Agriculture. It was the first billion dollar campaign. Uh, in higher education, and I had the privilege of working with Dave Dunlop, who was really the, uh, uh, I think, one of the gurus and one of the, the pioneers in major gift fundraising and relationship fundraising. So that just started my career. Um, did well there. We finished the billion-dollar campaign, and I learned so much from him. Um, y- you know, Kim, there's so much fear I think, and mystery, especially back then, associated with uh, fundraising. Oh, yeah. It's terrible. How to ask, 
when to ask, how much to ask for, et cetera. And so it was time then to, to really uh, uh, you know, do a more scientific approach. And so from there, um, had a great career uh, as assistant dean at the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences for 10 years, recruited to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. I, I stayed there as vice president for 10 years and really took the Cornell model and, and had the first campaign in the, the uh, CSU system and helped the system learn how to do campaigns. Then from there, UC Riverside, where we were uh, trying to create a medical school and we were successful. Then UNLV for 10 years, uh, another medical school, big campaign. And finally, when I thought I'd retire, they lured me to Portland State University where I served for four years. So I was really blessed with a great career and, and great colleagues. And I must say, too, uh, going back to uh, to fabulous Las Vegas, uh, you know, you did some uh, tremendous uh, heavy lifting to get the UNLV Foundation, our entire uh, infrastructure there uh, to sort of uh, professionalize that organization into a higher education uh, advancement model. So that that goes without saying, but I, I could be biased because I did spend some time there as well. Well, I, I appreciate that, Kim, and uh, that was that was a great time in my career. Um, actually, I went through four presidents, four, when I was there, and that's part of the problem we have in uh, uh, advancement is our presidents don't stay long enough, and so it makes relationship uh, uh, fundraising a little more difficult. Yeah, I know. You know, when I share the story about my time. Uh, you know, back there, and I share with somebody that, you know, in four and a half years, uh, worked under three presidents and about seven people that I reported to. And their head just shakes. I said, yeah, that was reality, but we just have to do what we have to do. <laughs> exactly right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's jump into the, uh, to, the to my uh, uh, couple of questions that I have for you that I want to discuss. You and I have had this conversation before. In advancement, metrics, also known as KPIs, are deeply ingrained in how we define a successful development professional or productivity of an advancement office. It's often the key to determining factors for compensation at all levels and performance incentives for the vice presidents, folks like uh, what you used to be. And so perhaps you could provide us a brief historical perspective on how metrics became such an integral part of advancement? Well, if, if you talk to fundraising, any president or board member back in the 90s, they were, they were fearful of fundraising. They had no idea what fundraising was. They didn't know how to do it. It was a mystery. And so basically, um, they tried to put a practical and scientific approach to it with donor calls um, and uh, uh, metrics uh, related to how soon you would uh, close a gift, et cetera, et cetera. But they didn't understand the fact that fundraising now is a relationship game and relationships take a long time to develop. And so um, back then they wanted to see, okay, here's the metrics especially the CFO, Kim, 
that mm -hmm. really governed our universities more than the presidents, because the presidents usually didn't have any or very limited financial uh, knowledge. So the CFOs were running us and they wanted to know the metrics that they could understand or we wouldn't get our budgets or we, and we wouldn't survive. So mm -hmm. basically metrics were developed and I think Dave Dunlop, I mentioned him earlier, great guy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of the gurus came up with the moves management system, which then the CFOs could understand a little more. And he did a lot of work as did consultants in those days saying, okay, here's how you do it. Here's the metrics. Here's what we do. Here's, here's the mystery taken out of uh, advancement. And that really caught on. And so that became the norm back in the nineties. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, I've never heard that story about how, how these old things, uh, all these things uh, came about and the impetus behind that. But it would make sense that as you start talking budgets, uh, speaking the language of the CFO is probably a good idea to try to get them to understand what we do. But then again, you go back to what you open up with. I mean, in a relationship building uh, uh, process or uh, business, we're not in control of all the variables. I mean, I can't control when you are going to want to write us a check or when you're going to do that because you have to believe in the mission of what we're about. We have to be aligned. So how right. how does one ensure that, you know, capture that when they're told you got to close a million dollars in six months or else? Uh, how, how does one maintain that relationship building model, the donor-centric model with that in place? You know, that's that's always been the challenge. It's a short-term problem. And CFOs want to see the results every fiscal year. And that's a problem for us. Uh, and so you can't ask for a gift unless the relationship is solid. Otherwise, you will get a tip. Forget about the gift. You're going to get 5 or 10%. Yeah, and, and uh, I recall a story that a friend of mine shared a while ago about a certain institution in uh, upstate New York that should remain nameless where they yeah. had been... <laughs> they had been uh, courting this uh, this donor, and uh, they had their campaign goal. They wanted to raise X amount of money to have that as a foundation to launch a campaign. And so they had only known this person for a few months, uh, didn't have a deep relationship. And so a, a certain university leader and the vice president, they go and talk to this individual and say, you know, we're launching a campaign and we need you. We need your support. We need to do this now uh, rather than later. And the person said, you know, well, uh, I'm, I'm only good for 100000 And uh, gave him 100000 as a leave me alone given. So they're excited. We're getting something from him, at least, you know, part of the campaign. Then later on, they hear from a diff uh, in the news that a different organization had gotten over a uh, million dollar commitment from that same person. And so they go back and they talk to him and say, why, why did you uh, not uh, consider giving us a uh, million dollars? Say, well, the difference between you guys and those folks is that they asked me about my philanthropic passion, about what I was about. And they had spent a long time uh, getting to know and understand what I value the most which is in the human services space. So I had spent time 
analyzing what opportunities existed. And I wanted to support them because I believed in them and their mission. And you were just trying to get your gift to close your books and say that this is an accomplishment with this donor. And so uh, they lost. And uh, unfortunately, there are even worse stories than that. And, oh, uh, oh there, there certainly are. And, and Kim, if I may interrupt, that is the perfect example of a tip, exactly what I was talking about. It's just, it's so hard to hear that because if you do the job, and I'll give you lots of examples of that, you can get the gift, but never take the tip because then you're, you're shorting the students, the university, and the program. And the other thing too, I was just having a discussion with somebody the other day about uh, about hiring and about how oftentimes uh, search committees, if they're looking at this VPs and whatnot, uh, they will go for somebody who comes in and says, well, when I was uh, at the University of uh, Shafalaya Basin, I raised $300 million and I did this, I did that. But very rare do they unpack that further to figure out, did this person really do that? And as you think about, uh, you know, these multi-billion dollar situations, I've never met a single person who can look you straight in the eye as an investor professional said, I went and talked to name a billionaire and I convinced them to give us $500 million single-handedly. But people, people fall for that. People fall for that. And, you know, I've seen it, you're seeing it, and many folks that have built their careers by creating this perception that they walk in water. When we all understand that if it wasn't for your faculty that runs a certain research program that delivers results, if you run for your dean, if it wasn't for your president, if it wasn't for your AVPs, development officers that have been nurturing that relationship, that entire team is what brought that success and not just you. You know what I mean? Oh, I couldn't agree more. Any success I've had in in development has not been about me. I, I've been the facilitator. I've gotten the president involved. I've gotten the deans involved. And I can give you lots of examples. It's rarely about me, nor should it be. It should be about others. This, this is a team game. How do we help uh, organizations, leadership, uh, you know, on all sides, the academy, uh, you know, administratively, understand that for this uh, field uh, to do right by the institutions that it serves, we need to shift that paradigm and go back to the basics and focus on things that matter? Well, Kim, you, that's a great question. And, I, and you know, I've thought about that a lot. And I thank you for this podcast because I've been able to kind of go through my career over the last two or three weeks and a little bit each day and try to get examples. So um, basically, um, Face-to-face visits, proposal activity, gift closures are not bad metrics, but, but they can't stand alone. What you have to do initially as um, a vice president, an assistant dean, which I was, a uh, major gift officer, 
is you have to start internally and you have to get a team because if you think you're omnipotent and you can raise money by yourself, you're wrong. You have to know the institution backwards and forwards. Coming back to my marketing background, you have to be able to talk about the impact of the institution. You have to bring in faculty. You have to bring in deans. You have to bring in the press because it's a team game here. And if you think you can do it alone, get another profession. Um, and yeah, I think internal. Um, I really think the evaluation that we should give is internal as much as external. And how well do you work with deans? How well do you know the institution? How well do you know your college? Um, how well do you know the the uh, the areas your donors are working with? And how and how effective are you in bringing the right faculty member? the right dean, the right, the right vice president or, or the president to bear on getting major gifts because you're not gonna do it alone. You're a facilitator. We have to remember we're all facilitators and internal communications and internal relationship building is just as important as external. And, and I think that, that's missing completely in, in our profession. People do not, do not do a good job of evaluating gift officers and others on their internal communication and relationship building. So how would you, how would you suggest, or, or what would you suggest rather to, uh, to that point, uh, to a VP, AVP, whoever, somebody in leadership as they try to address the staffing needs and they're looking at people, uh, what would you suggest as uh, that they should go about doing that? Because as you know, almost every job description or higher jobs, okay, so whatever, uh, the number one thing they focus on is how much have you raised? How many visits do you do? How many proposals do you put in? And those kind of things. And the one question that usually is sort of buried out there, they'll talk about uh, the ability to collaborate with academic leaders uh, and in a very uh, vague sense, as if that development person controls all the levers uh, to, to drive uh, activity. And uh, I, I submit to you that the reason why we have such a attrition, high attrition rate and it keeps on getting worse is not because yep. people are not good at the job, or it's not because we, you know, we, we, there's a poor quality control. It's rather uh, burnout driven by the fact that there's a lack of a mission connection. I am here to raise a bunch of money and right. that's what I'm here for. When we accomplished that goal, we finished this campaign, guess what? Uh, I gotta figure out what I'm gonna do next. Whereas the other part of it is I'm here to support the mission of the Academy. I have relationships here that I believe in, and uh, whether it's with the students, the faculty, the researchers, I feel that it is my responsibility to play a role as a partner to advance the mission and the work that they do. I mean, that to me is 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 a has been a challenge. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, as you look at uh, it, whatever data you look at regarding. Uh, uh, attrition, talent management, and things like that. When you have a conversation with folks, they say, well, 
I raise a lot of money, but I don't really feel that I belong here. I don't really feel that this is, uh, this is my place. So I'm just waiting for the university X to open up and I'll get a big job and I'll be gone. You know, and that's, that is something that needs to be addressed. Well, you know, Kim, you hit it right on, on, you hit the nail on the head. And I've always been uh, a marketer first uh, and a relationship builder second, because I want to, mar- I want to listen. I want to see what, what your principal gift folks are interested in, then I want to bring the very best people to show the impact of what they're interested in to them. And um, then gifts come much more naturally. And and, uh, so I'm a marketing guy. I I couldn't agree more. And uh, if if you're a transactional guy or or woman that, that wants to just uh, you know, uh, uh, get the money, you're not going to last long in this profession. I'm, I'm pretty certain of that now. And um, you want to make sure, I, I think everyone in our profession wants to make sure they're making an impact. And the only way you do that is to get the deans, the, the appropriate faculty involved. You have to listen to the donors, see what their interests are. And you want to create an impact. You don't want to, on your dying bed, say, well, yeah, I was involved in development or advancement, but I really can't remember the impact that I had. You want to say, I helped with that medical school. I helped with 100 scholarships. I helped create a better world for us because that's what you have to have in your heart to be to be a good advancement person. If you don't have that in your heart, get another job because it's all about helping people and making this world a better place. May sound a little trite, but I've always believed that. And it, it, it's that partnering and that connection that advancement has to have with the institution for us to be successful. You know, Bill, one of the things that I'm very grateful for our profession is, you know, is the lifelong stories, the, the connections they make with people. Uh, years ago, uh, I met somebody when I was working, uh, you know, at the University of Arizona at the time. And to this day, I mean, we're, you know, we're still uh, good friends. And as a matter of fact, there was a time when way past my time with the institution, uh, the folks uh, in the development shop that came after us reached out and said, hey, can you help us figure one, two, three, four, five things about this person? And I was glad to uh, assist with that. And as I would have conversations with that individual, they were very grateful the fact that when I was exiting, I transitioned that relationship to somebody. I made it about the institution. I did not rush them to make a gift when they were not ready. Years later, they ended up making that gift. And so as I was talking to uh, one of my former bosses, he shared an example of a donor that had been involved with the institution for over 30 years, served on boards, whose relationship had been managed by at least a dozen people. I played a tiny role in that. Somebody else played a tiny role, a few deans and a few uh, presidents. When that individual passed on, their family donated over $20 million in support of the institution. And so I'll share that story 
to essentially uh, demonstrate what, you, what you've been talking about in that when the relationship is about the relationship authentically, about ensuring that uh, we're focusing on what's in the best interest of the donor, it's a win-win for everybody. You're going to hit your metrics uh, if that's what you're concerned about. It's going to happen. But if you are purely transactional and you are all about, I want to make myself look good for the next institution, guess what? That donor is going to know about it. They're not, they're not, they did not become successful by being uh, foolish. They're going to figure well, that out quickly. And I would, I would call that artificial. And there's no... There's no role in our profession for the artificial donors, the ones that aren't authentic. You have to have it in your heart. And so a couple of examples that are interesting. Number one, uh, before I start with that, let me just say that I think the most important metric that we can have is I always had in my portfolio the top 20 or 30 donors at the institution and every day I'd have them on my desk, I'd look at them and I would say, what can I do with each of these individuals to further the relationship? Now that's really hard for vice presidents, which I was for 30 years, or assistant deans or even development officers because there's always the speech to give. I also oversaw media relations, government relations, any speech the president couldn't give any problem the president had with uh, was going, but I had to always focus on those 20 or 30 donors. And every day I'd have those people up and of course they'd change. And I'd keep a journal on each in terms of, okay, what's happened? And I turn those journals over every time to my predecessor. Okay, so, you know, Susie Jones has done this, but she can do this. And so I think if you're evaluating officers or vice presidents or assistant deans, you need to look at those 20 or 30 people that they've been working with and the journals that you've put together and those need to be passed on. And how, and how robust are those? And how have those been, been shared with deans and presidents and others to make sure that you have a whole institutional process? You know, it's not good enough for a vice president even to, to talk about this. You need to have the president involved and having the president's input and maybe a trustee and maybe another donor. So it's so important, I think, as a measurement, as, as an important metric, who are the 20 or 30 major donors that you have? What have you done with them? Let me see their journals. You need to pass that along. Because you know what? You know this much better than I do. Um, right when I started, we, we had a, a pyramid of giving. It's no longer a pyramid. It's now a radio tower because about three or 2% of the donors are gonna give you 95 to 96% of the funding. And if you don't pay attention to those donors and build those true relationships, um, the institution will suffer, the students will suffer, et cetera. You know, you raise a very good point, which leads me to this other thought regarding transitions and how they impact productivity. Uh, oftentimes, the hands-off, what do I mean by that? I am at University X, 
and I receive an opportunity to move on to a different place and I manage a portfolio of relationships. How I transition those to the next person and how I ensure that those relationships remain with the institution is absolutely critical to the future success of that institution. And you and I know many people don't do that. It's uh, I've been nope. working with these 20 and uh, I facilitated, oh, I would say I raised $100 million, 300 with these people and <laughs> I am leaving. I'm going to keep that Rolodex and I'm not going to worry about what happened to the place that has been home for me for the last 10 years. That happens so often and I've seen it being detrimental to the success of the institution. So every time, you know, folks think about flipping leaders or, you know, officers that are leaving, then it's like you're going back five years, you're going back 10 years to start to rebuild things. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I'll tell you my thoughts about that. I took over and I'll just tell the, I have to be careful because too many people know me. And if they hear this podcast, I'm going to get all the bad phone calls ever. So, <laughs> but I'm just going to, I'm going to tell you, I'll, I'll be specific on this. This was University of California, Riverside. I came in, new guy, and I'm, I know about the value of relationships. My former vice president, for whatever reason, was not well-liked by the president or the provost. And, but this person had amazing connections with donors. And so I said, oh no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep him on as a consultant. And the president and the provost at, at my job security said, we think you're wrong, Bill. I said, no, I think I'm right. And so what happened about a year later, we were trying to create a medical school well, guess what? That vice president who had the 10-year relationship with a donor um, was able to introduce me to the donor with his credit and added his credibility by saying Bill's a good guy. And guess who got the lead, who made the lead gift to the medical school? It's all about those long-term relationships. Another one. Um, and I'll, I'll say this, I'll say it again. Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, loved that institution. I was vice president there for 10 years. So I had a dean, uh, Bill Bailey, who told me when I was trying to build the program, first big program campaign in, in the whole 23 university system, he said, fundraising is dirty. I don't like it. I'm not going to do it. And so I, being a tenacious person, which you have to be in our profession, I said, Bill, you're so charismatic, you don't understand fundraising. You wanna help your, your college of science and mathematics. And so in order to do that, you need to be involved. And let me help you. It, it's, it's just about relationship building. And so at the end of our campaign, uh, it was the first campaign in the system, we, we achieved our goal. He was upset because his college was only a million dollars away from engineering. And he said, I try to beat them. But then 10 years later, after, long after I left, he received a $110 million gift. Oh man. 110 million to, to Cal Poly, which is still the biggest gift on record because he was involved 
I was long gone. I was two universities away. He was involved with this individual who believed in practical education and the learn by doing philosophy that Bill was involved with and made the gift. And I was so proud of him. And that's happened to me in my career. Well, at UNLV, the medical school, I just talked to uh, Lindy Schumacher today, and we finally got the medical school going. I helped initially, but seven years after I'm gone, it's there because of the relationships that we built. And you can't take credit short term. You have to realize you're planting the seed and you just pray that the seed grows into fruition. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I can't, uh, as a former UNLV, or I can't thank uh, Wendy and uh, and those folks enough uh, for what they have done and what they continue to do. I mean, uh, I was I was back there in Vegas a, a few weeks ago and uh, driving through downtown and I see that building. And I remember when that was a dirt lot and I remember when there was that talks about that becoming a reality and to see that, okay, not only do we have a school of medicine, but we have a fabulous building and wait, there may be more. And that just goes to, to what you're talking about in terms of building these long-term fruitful relationships that are authentic and connecting uh, with the community's passion. I mean, people are passionate about ensuring that one of the largest metropolitan areas in America that did not have a medical school had one and that it's going to be supported because it's something that impacts the community at, at large. So if somebody was just uh, focused focused on the short term and not thinking long term and intentionally building that, uh, that project would not have become reality. So it just Never. speaks to, uh, to what you're talking about. Never. No, it's always long term. And I really think that the strongest measurement for any advancement person in the field should be those 20 or 30 donors they're working with and the relationships they've built while they've been at the institution. And the reason I I went through my tenure is at institutions is I usually stayed 10 years at institutions because I knew that I couldn't do I really would would be cheating the institution if I stayed a shorter period of time because of the relationship building process. So then I'll pose this question to you. I mean, that is all great. In most of these roles, you are a vice president. So there are a lot of folks who are listening who I know who are senior directors, executive directors, what have you, AVPs, that they love where they are. They believe in the mission. But one they don't have a portfolio that will allow them to work with that significant gifts. And two, they would like to go and be in a position where they can be uh, ex- be responsible for executing a grander vision, but there's no room for growth at all. So they ask, well, should I just stay here and just keep on waiting until I get the opportunity that I may not get? Or what do I do? Because I think that's the main frustration with a lot of people. What, what you say is absolutely correct. But I know people at different institutions, even now as I speak, who love being there. But they also want to be in a in a in a different role, a bigger role. Maybe they want to be, you know, in, in your shoes. Or maybe they want to be in a place where they're working in principal gifts or something where they can have ownership and that exercise that leadership. 
that they know will be necessary for them to be able to to experience those wins that you're talking about. What are your thoughts? Um, my thoughts are that you need to just kind of stay the course and make sure that you do your job in building relationships with the donors that you have control over. Do your job internally and externally. I've always been a, a, one of the most positive people on the block, and I've always tried to be a role model for that because just that's just the way I am. So I think if you have a real positive orientation, you're working well with your donors, you're work, working well internally, there are so few really good jobs and good people in roles, you're going to shine. And you let it go for a year or two, and, and you see if your institution has the culture that um, rewards that. And if you don't, you should be good enough to, to look at other institutions and colleagues where you can shine. Because a positive, authentic fundraiser who really believes in long-term building long-term relationships doing the right thing ethically and is positive is uh, you're going to succeed. And what I said to people when I came is, listen, you're going to prosper if you treat the parking attendant and the server at the restaurant the same as you do the major donor. You have to be authentic. You have to be positive. You have to be a marketer of, of the institution. And I firmly believe that if you do that, you will rise in this institution um, in, in, in any uh, profession within your institution. Or if, or if that institution doesn't value that, find one that does, because you will succeed if you find that institution. And there are institutions out there that have that culture. Don't work in a negative culture, because that will, that will degrade your skills and um, will not allow you to achieve what you should achieve. And it will not allow the institution to be impactful. Very well said. I couldn't think of better words. So as we, uh, you know, you and I could talk about this until tomorrow because we're very passionate about this. So And, and I'm <laughs> writing a book, Kim. So, so, so now I'm getting yeah. really geared up for this book. <laughs> Man, write that book. We need it. The people need it. We need that book. It can help our industry because uh, we all care about the institutions that we serve and the things that we do uh, on behalf of the institution. And more importantly, our people. You know, the people are the foundation of all that we do. So with that, with that, uh, I want you to give us uh, two key uh, suggestions on how leaders can foster an environment that values relationship management while demonstrating uh, the ROI of uh, development shops to, to institutional leadership? Well, Tim, that's a great question. Number one, it starts internally. The successful development shop will treat their, their staff, their partners, the same way they treat their donors. You have to make sure that there's a positive climate. If you don't have a positive climate internally, there's no way you can have a positive climate externally. So number one, develop that climate and treat, 
treat each other as you would treat a $5 million donor and uh, be authentic, um, provide recognition. What you do with that is I would always with the president, I would bring in whatever staff member when we were talking about our top 20 donors, be it the researcher or be it the the, the one month old um, development director up to the yeah. president to talk about, okay, we're talking about Kim. How can we get Kim to give 2 million? I know you can give 2 million, Kim. I know it. And, and so how can we do that? How can we build this relationship? So you have to bring all levels of staff um, up there and you have to make sure the recognition is not just external, but get the president to write to write a thank you note to the different um, advancement directors or researchers that, that have made a difference. So that culture, if you don't build that culture, that positive culture internally, there's no way you can have a successful program, number one. Number two, you have to change the metrics. Yeah, you know, I know about face-to-face -face visits and asks, et cetera. I wanna see how you've developed your top 20 donors. I wanna see your, your, your journal of what you've done. I wanna see how well you've done this externally. Uh, the gifts will come. It's all about developing those relationships. So I wanna, I wanna create a metric that's different than what we see. I wanna create a metric that, that um, uh, values the relationships, the long-term relationships that are made. And that's easy to do. Let's, you have your journals on your top 20 donors. Anybody can look at those. We just don't. And, and that's so important because that's a long-term relationship that will eventually relate to a, a major gift. Um, and I, I think those two things are critical. Well, Bill, what can I say? You're amazing, my friend. This, uh, this is a great conversation. I'm sure to be continued. Looking forward to that book when it finally hits uh, the shelves and, uh, and all the different places where people can get that. So thank you so much for some outstanding words of wisdom. Uh, well, folks, there you have it. I'm Kim Nione. Thanks for tuning in to Mentorship Matters. We'll talk soon and see you later.